Welcome to the GBC Sermon Podcast, a weekly podcast from Gaimia Baptist Church in Sydney, Australia. I'm Mark Rader, Senior Pastor here at GBC, and I'm so glad that you joined us again this week. This week we continue our Christmas series, Songs of Hope, and have a look at the invitation for each of us found in Psalm 85. Today's Bible reading is from Psalm 85, verses 1 to 2 and 8 to 13. You, Lord, showed favour to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. I will listen to what God the Lord says. His promises, peace to his people, his faithful servants. But let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. Well, welcome back to our series, Songs of Hope, in which we are examining the Psalms that are part of the lectionary readings for the church season of Advent. And in case you're unfamiliar with either the terms Advent or lectionary, let me just very briefly introduce them to you again. The lectionary is a three-year cycle of readings that's used by many churches around the world that contains four readings for each Sunday. Uh, There's one from the Psalms, which we're using, another one from somewhere else in the Old Testament, and then one from the Gospels and one from the Epistles. And the idea is that over three years, you would read fairly significant chunks of the Bible together. And I think it's really important uh, in a time like this when we feel disjointed and isolated to remember that we are part of something much, much bigger. Uh, That while we might be one community of faith gathering together, in this case online, we're part of countless communities of faith who today will be reading this same psalm and perhaps reflecting on it at the same time. And I think that's kind of exciting. We're also doing the lectionary readings for the season of Advent, and that's the four weeks leading up to Christmas. It's a period of time where the church has traditionally set aside some time to focus our hearts and minds in preparation to celebrate the first coming of Jesus and also to prepare our hearts for his second coming. And while we don't talk much about the second coming anymore, uh, it's not a huge focus in many of our churches. Uh, Some of you might remember when it was. You might remember the the charts and the timelines and the studies in the book of Daniel and Revelation and all of those sorts of things. But the controversies that they uh, created uh, and uh, some of the hassles around that has kind of meant that there's been a de-emphasis on it. But the second coming of Jesus is actually, I think, a really important theme and doctrine for us as we reflect on Psalm 85 today. So if you have your Bibles with you, why don't you turn to this Psalm? I wanna draw your attention to a few features within it and present for us, I think, a really important, significant, and exciting invitation to participate with what God is doing. So Psalm 85, uh, it opens uh, as a corporate hymn should open, uh, first of all, with lots of us and we language, but also focused solely and squarely on the work of God. 
Now the reading itself in the lectionary is verses one and two and then eight to 13. I wanna deal with the whole Psalm. Uh, just as an aside, one of the reasons why they may have stopped after verse two, if you have a look in your Bible, there may be a little, a little letter after it, a little textual note that tells you that there's a salah, the word salah. We don't know what it means. We don't know whether it's a, a musical uh, connotation to pause or whether it's kind of the equivalent of an amen or whatever it might be. And that might be why they've chosen to pause there, but I want to take the whole section because I think there's some really significant stuff in it. I want you to notice, though, the focus on the work of God. They begin by referring to what God has done in the past. You, Lord, showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. And again, before we move on, I want you to notice that the restoration, the renewal of fortunes is actually more than simply what the author goes on to talk about in relationship to sin. As the psalm unfolds, we find that the, the, um, the restoration and renewal includes more than their relationship with God, but actually has implications for the really practical components of life, including the harvest. But then there's this, this shift to the ways in which God has both demonstrated his, uh, his restoration and renewal of them, uh, and also kind of how that has come about. And there's a whole series of, I think, striking verbs here. The first of them is, you forgave the iniquity of your people. And for, forgave or forgive is, is a pretty powerful verb in and of itself. But the, the, the term itself in the Hebrew is actually a, a, little bit, a little bit different. Usually it's translated as to lift, to actually take something away. And so the very first thing that God has done, because the emphasis is on God, is that he has lifted up the iniquities. He's taken them off the shoulders of his people which is followed by the description of him covering all their sins. And this is not the same word that's used to, um, to talk about the atonement, right? Which essentially means to cover. It's actually the same word that's used in the story of the flood to describe the waters covering the mountains. This is not God kind of throwing a blanket over our sins, you know, where you can still basically make out what's underneath. This is a description of God burying our sins. It is, it is God overwhelming them, covering them to such a degree that no one would ever imagine that they were still there. Then it shifts more specifically to God's uh, attitude to his own anger. It says that he had set aside all his wrath. He has, he has gathered it up and he has put it away. So he hasn't just kind of set it aside and said, oh, listen, I'll deal with that a little bit later. He has taken all of his anger and he has removed it. It is no longer on the agenda at all. And he has turned from his fierce anger. And this idea of turning is, is actually a pretty significant Old Testament theological term. Uh, frequently, the, um, the, the prophets ask the people, they, they plead with the people to turn again to the Lord. And here, God is turning away definitively from his anger. This is the, the opening picture. And it's an amazing one, isn't it? It focuses solely and squarely on the activity of God. The, the, the focus is not even on the people's sinfulness or, the, or their iniquity. There's a, an acknowledgement that that's the case, but it's all about what God has done. But then in verse four, we come to the disconnect. Brett mentioned this last week, it's very common all throughout scripture, and that the people of God routinely kind of came up against the, 
the activity of God and yet the more to come, right? Between the inauguration and the consummation of the activity of God. And so in verse four, the, the, the song changes and, and they pick up the same term. The Hebrew term for restore is actually again to turn. So after having announced and, and remembered that God had turned from his anger, the psalm begins to talk about the fact that God needs to turn to them again. Uh, he had to turn to them again, to restore them, to put away his displeasure towards them. They ask the questions, will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. So already we see that this psalm has these two components to it, a remembering of what God has done in the past and then a recognition that there is more to be done. And the beauty of the psalms, of course, is that this kind of movement is, well, it's applicable to the people of God in nearly any generation. Uh, you can talk about this in relationship to the people's experience of exile. Returning from exile, the great fortune of God, and yet when they returned, experiencing life not as grand as they had perhaps hoped. God had done something amazing, but there was more to be done. We can pick it up in relationship to the things that we celebrate at Christmas. We look back at the birth of Jesus, don't we? Over this period of time and remember what God has done. Because in the person of Jesus, we have a very clear demonstration of God showing favor to us, of restoring our fortunes. And the verbs that are used here to describe what God has done can be easily applied to Jesus, lifting our iniquities, covering, overwhelming our sins. And yet, verse 4 remains for us today. It's hard for us to look back at the birth of Jesus and all that he has done for us and say in our world today that, yep, everything's fine. There is more to be done. And, and this, this, this psalm, this prayer, this corporate prayer, I think sits pretty comfortably on our own lips. The idea that we can look back at what God has done, but at the same time long for him to do more. But in verse 8, there is a significant little shift. Uh, there's a, a change of voice. It shifts from being corporate to being individual. Uh, and we don't really know how these psalms were used or performed in services of worship. But we do have a couple of little clues that suggest that something significant is happening right here. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 20 really, really quickly. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, the people of Judah and Jerusalem are faced with an overwhelming problem. There's a massive army that they can't uh, possibly defend themselves against. And so the king gathers all the people in Jerusalem. And uh, at the beginning of the, of the chapter, he prays, right? All the people are gathered there. He prays to the Lord and asks that the Lord would do something on their behalf. And in uh, 2 Chronicles 20, verse 13, listen to what happens next. The king has finished praying and all the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. Then 
the spirit of the Lord came on Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, as he stood in the assembly. And he said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. So it seems that there was a bit of a, um, of a practice of gathering before the Lord in times of crisis in particular and crying out to the Lord and then literally waiting for a word from the Lord. If you have a look in Psalm chapter 60, uh, you'll see, I, I think, a, a, a reflection of this. This psalm also opens with a time of crisis, right? It begins in verse 1, you've rejected us, God, and burst upon us. But have a look more significantly in verse 6. God has spoken from his sanctuary. And then we actually have a quote. This is, these are the words of the Lord, kind of the fresh word of the Lord in the midst of that crisis. In triumph, I will parcel out Shechem and measure off the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Right? He talks about the, the, the rule and reign of God, of God himself in that situation. So it may be that Psalm 85 was performed in two parts. That the people gathered together, they reflected on the great things that God had done in the past and then brought before him the need for him to renew that in their day. And then the high priest, a prophet, spoke verse 8. I will listen to what God the Lord says. But here, we don't have a fresh, new word from the Lord. What we have instead is the prophet or the priest here restating, reiterating again the things that God has already said. A reminder of what God has promised. He says, I will listen to what God the Lord says and what he says is peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. To the people, he says, be wise here. Continue to fear the Lord. Because surely, he says in verse 9, surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. So while there is no um, kind of uh, fresh new word of the Lord that says this is what's going to happen and this is when it's going to take place, there is this really important pause of faith. An opportunity for the people who have just poured out not only their reflections on what God has done, but their desperate need for him to continue to work. And in the midst of that, they are not given a clear path forward, but they are called to remember what God has already said. Because what God speaks, he does. What the Lord declares with his voice becomes reality. And then there's this remarkable, again, kind of a final part of the psalm. And I think, this is where, I think this is where our invitation exists. So again, as I was reading this through, I was struck by the, the shift in verse 10 to personifications. It's kind of like we are introduced to um, the, the heroes of God's future plan, of his desire to bring peace to his people. You kind of picture these characters, love and faithfulness, we're told, meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. And, and, and the picture that I had in my mind was not just of some sort of formal meeting around a board table, but of, of close friends who haven't seen each other for a while. 
It's the handshake and the half kind of hug. It's the kiss on the cheek as, as you embrace each other and say, it's so good to see you. These are the, the, the characters who are going to bring about the work of God, love and faithfulness, righteousness and peace. Faithfulness, we're told, springs from the earth. Righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. And this got me thinking again about these characters, love and faithfulness, righteousness and peace, kind of gathering together, you know, springing from the earth, looking down from heaven, but also preparing the way for the Lord. Preparing the way for the peace and salvation that includes so much more than forgiveness alone, right? It includes the harvest that's the glory of God in the land. It is the the full restoration of their fortunes. But these virtues function a little bit like an advanced team for a really significant event. Uh, Think about things like uh, the Olympics or the G7 or... I don't know, if, if the queen were to visit Australia. I mean, you, you don't prepare those sorts of things, you know, in London, just kind of sitting in some desk uh, in the palace and then get on the plane and fly out here, right? Uh, there'd be an advanced team who would be on the ground days, weeks, possibly months in advance, making sure that all the details were worked out, making sure that all the preparations were done, making sure that when the event happened, it went off without a hitch. And here we have love and faithfulness, righteousness and peace as the advance party preparing the way for the Lord, preparing the way for this peace, for this salvation, for this restoration renewal that is to come. And as I suggested earlier, this psalm, I think, um, sits pretty comfortably on our lips. Uh, we can look back at the birth of Jesus and we can say, yeah, that was amazing. And, and we, uh, many of us have placed our faith in what Jesus has done. And yet we can look at our world and recognize that verse 4 is still applicable, that there is more to be done, that the restoration and renewal needs to continue. And we need to remember, just as the people of Israel were reminded, that God has made promises of peace, that he has made promises to restore and renew the world and what he has promised he will do. But here's where the invitation sits. Here's where the invitation sits for you and for me this Christmas. Because love and faithfulness, righteousness and peace are not people per se. They're personified here so we can picture them greeting one another, but ultimately they're virtues that are at work in the people of God. Continually throughout Scripture, in the Old Testament and then in the New, these are the sorts of virtues and characteristics that are meant to define you and me. You and I are meant to be defined by our love and our faithfulness, by our righteousness or justice, and by our peace. And when we think about it that way, and we think about the first coming of Jesus at Christmas, and we look forward to his second coming, the invitation is for you and I to be part of the advanced team for the return of the Lord. Because wherever you and I demonstrate the love and faithfulness of God. Wherever you and I put into action the righteousness and peace of God, 
in our families, in our friendships, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our businesses, in our neighborhoods. Whenever we put those things into practice, whenever we demonstrate those, we are in fact preparing the way for the Lord. We are preparing the way for the event to take place. We're making preparations so that when the Lord returns, everything will go off without a hitch. And I think that's an amazing invitation, particularly this Christmas. I mean, every Christmas we are encouraged to be generous. Every Christmas we are reminded to be kind. But at the end of this year, at the end of 2020, after all that we have gone through, and and our experience has been so much less impactful than in many places in the world, we have so much not only to be grateful for, but we have so many opportunities to be the advanced team for the coming of the Lord. Not only to uh, point to and remind people of the first coming of Jesus, but to make preparations for his return. So can I encourage you this week to make this psalm your prayer? Uh, To to use this as a pattern for prayer this week. To to, to focus on what God has done in the past. to, To remember the great things that he has done. To reflect on the need that we have for God to do more. Make Psalm 85, 8 the heart of that prayer. I will listen to what God the Lord says. And if there is no fresh, immediate word, remember what has already been said. And then look for the opportunities in every circumstance, in every situation, to demonstrate love and faithfulness, righteousness and peace as we work out what it means to be the advanced team for the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So will you make Psalm 85 your prayer this week? Thanking God for what He has done in the past, acknowledging our need for Him to continue to work, listening for and reflecting upon what He has said, and then looking for opportunities to participate as part of the advanced team preparing the way for the Lord. We hope you join us again soon, and we'd love for you to join us for church at gbconline.org.au at our regular service times of 8.30, 10.30, and 6 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. You can also follow us on Facebook or visit our website at gamiabaptist.org.au. Until next time, God bless.